a salesman sold a farmer a chainsaw. He said, this would easily cut 50 trees a day. Now the farmer, having acquired a great power to do his job, he went back happy. But the next morning, the farmer stormed into the store and he threw the chainsaw back at the counter. I can barely cut down a tree with this contraption, the farmer shouted. The salesman took the chainsaw, pulled the cord, and immediately the chainsaw roared to life with a sound. And the farmer jumped back in wonder, hey, what is that sound? Having power does not mean that we are benefiting from it correctly. Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. But are they like Jesus Christ? Are you like Jesus Christ? We are still imperfect, aren't we? We have the power of the Spirit within us, but there is something lacking when we look at how holy and righteous our life looks like, isn't it? And this is the same question that Paul addresses in our passage today. Now, before we go into the text, you would have noticed that throughout the passage, throughout Ephesians, Paul has spoken about power again and again. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us of God's great immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. He also tells us that Christ is seated above every rule and authority and power. In Ephesians 3 verse 7, we see that Paul's ministry was given to him in power. Later on in Ephesians, he even uses a picture of warfare when talking about spiritual matters and reminding them to put on the armor of God. Again and again, Paul emphasizes on this idea of power. And in our text today, he prays for the Ephesians for power. Why? Now to understand this, we need to understand the context of the Ephesians. Now in Acts chapter 19, we will see how Paul comes to Ephesus and the situation that they were in. Now the people in Ephesus, they have always been a people that were seeking power because of their culture and their situation. You see, they lived where the cult of Artemis, the temple of Artemis was there, and the cult was in full force. And that would mean people everywhere in that town would be visiting the temple of Artemis, buying idols, participating in worship rituals in order to procure a blessing from Artemis, right? Uh, they would be using incantations, talismans, part of their culture. So seeking out this blessing of the God, seeking out the power of the God would be part of their culture. And this would affect the mindset of the Ephesians in regard to seeking power for their betterment. And we can see this mindset. Even when they hear the gospel, they leave their pagan religion, they come to hear the gospel, we see hints of it. You see, when Paul was working miracles, the Ephesians brought back handkerchiefs and aprons that he touched uh, to those who are sick and possessed, and they used it to heal them. Uh, Jewish exorcists in Ephesus, such as the sons of Sceva, they tried to replicate the same power that Paul had by seeking to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Of course, they didn't have the power, which led to them getting a whacking from the demons they tried to exercise. And we also see that when believers came to Christ in Ephesus, many had been practitioners of the magic arts. They have been part of the occult and pagan religion of that time, right? Magic in the sense of obtaining blessings or protection, not magic as in David Copperfield, David Blaine. So we see that in fact, 
they had spent a fortune on these things. And we see that in the text when you know, they surrender the magical text to be burned. Now, Acts tells us that these books and scrolls that were burned amounted to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I know that means nothing to you. Let's convert it to Malaysian currency and you will find that 50,000 pieces of silver translate into 24 million ringgit. 24 million ringgit for books in one city. You see, the Ephesians felt they needed power. They were in Ephesus where the worship of Artemis was in full force and they were challenged and threatened for holding on to their faith. They were in a nation of a monolithic and overpowering religion which is hostile to them and they were the minority religion. You can sympathize and understand that. Now, the immediate mindset would be, how do we gain power to resist these challenges that we are facing as the people of Ephesus? Therefore, throughout this letter, Paul is writing to them in a language that they can understand. Right? So, that is why Paul seeks to show them in this letter where true power can be found. So his aim is to help them understand how they should change their mindset. His aim is to teach them how power worked in the Christian context compared to the expectations they might have. And that is what we will see in our passage today. Come with me to the text, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul begins with, for this reason which shows us that this part of the passage is related to what Paul has been speaking about throughout in this letter. So he says for this reason three times in the text, actually. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 15. Then again in last week's passage, chapter 3, verse 1, and here in chapter 3, verse 14. Now this thematic repetition is actually part of the structure of the letter. You see, in chapter 1, Paul begins by giving a doxology, a praise to God for the wonderful things that he's doing, reconciling all things in heaven and earth to Christ. And that's the first for this reason. And he gives thanks for them. He gives glory to God for how he has raised these people who are spiritually dead, seated them in the heavenly places. Then we see the second for this reason, chapter 3. He explains to them why now he's writing the letter and he shows them about the gospel, how the gospel saves the Gentile. And indirectly, he teaches them the necessity of the gospel to be proclaimed to everyone, no matter the cost. And then this brings us to the third for this reason. Paul has revealed to them the true understanding behind the salvation. He declares that God is all-powerful and at work. He has called them to be like him, to suffer for the gospel. But in the ending of Ephesians 3 verse 13, he also shows the cost of this thing. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. See, Paul is in prison. And this reveals the persecution that comes when you faithfully proclaim the gospel. So this is the reason why now Paul is bending his knees. He's doing it so that they will stay firm and true for the purpose of the gospel. So Paul's prayer here is in light with the necessity for the gospel to be proclaimed 
to be demonstrated even in their lives for God's glory. So we have seen throughout Ephesians about how God is fully sovereign. We have seen how God has put Christ above every power and dominion. So it is in acknowledgement of this God that Paul bends his knees before the Father. He comes in prayer with knees bent, which is an appropriate posture to adopt when coming before this glorious God. It signifies humility and surrender. That is why in the liturgical side, they will have cushions for kneeling, and people kneel when they participate in the Lord's Supper. However, as C.S. Lewis quoted, a concentrated mind and a sitting body makes for better prayer than a kneeling body and a mind half asleep. So it's not so much about the posture of the body, but what Paul is trying to show is the posture of the heart in coming to God. So don't worry if you're not kneeling. But do remember that you are coming before a holy and powerful God when you pray, when you engage with Him. So when we have corporate prayer time, try not to check your Facebook or play Candy Crush. It's probably a good idea not to do so for the sermon as well. <laughs> then, we are told in the text that every family in heaven and on earth is named from God the Father. And this is meant to show us how God is the originator of all people and his fathership is the model of authority that every family replicates, every family submits to. Children submit to their father, citizens submit to their king, and therefore all human beings, every family, is called to submit to God. So it is to this father right, that Christ himself, who is above all things, submits to. So he is the sovereign God, and thus it is right for Paul to bend his knee and come before this God in prayer. And this is what Paul prays, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He desires for the Father to be working in the lives of the Ephesian Christians, See, in the riches of the Father's glory, He will glorify these people that He has predestined, that He has called to be His true Christ. And this is what Paul is asking them, that God will strengthen the inner beings of Christian with power. And we understand that Paul is speaking in a language of power which the Ephesians can relate to and understand. But what does this power look like? Is it about being able to suddenly burst out in tongues? Or is it about miracles of healing and exorcism? Paul did practice this. Or is it the power to speak and make your wishes and desires come true? And this is what normally what people think of power. In fact, there are a lot of churches that teach and preach this when they talk about power. However, Paul clarifies what this power that he's praying for actually looks like. Verse 17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, and he's showing us here, friends, that this is real power. Not the type that we normally associate with the idea of power, but the biblical view of real power is shown in the working of the Holy Spirit in the inner being 
to change our characters and convictions so that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. It is about how people who were once dead in sin are now able to live for God, to respond to Him. Now, at this point, you may ask, hey, but doesn't Christ already dwell in the heart of believers through the Holy Spirit? Isn't Paul praying for something that they should already have? That's a good question. Think about it. In what manner is Paul's prayer showing to us this dwelling of Christ in our hearts? Now, there's two ways to think about how Christ dwells in our hearts, right? The first is, Christ is seated at the corner of our hearts. We bring it out on Sunday where we all be Christ-like when we come to service. And then as soon as our normal life resumes, we push him to the corner, close the door, and then we live the way we want to. And that's what many of us do, don't we? When we are called to join Bible studies, when we are called to serve our brothers and sisters in their sickness or difficulties, oftentimes we don't really want to do it. Or when we do it, it's for selfish reasons such as social acceptance, personal pride. When we are challenged to share the gospel, we get scared and we think of excuses of why we should not do it. We start making excuses so that we can justify not sharing the gospel. Even within our hearts, where Christ is dwelling through the Spirit, even then we will see problems. There will be some compartments of our hearts that are filled with sin, our own desires, our own ambitions, and we refuse to surrender this to Christ who dwells in us. Now, while imperfect, while you still struggle, you are still Christian if your faith is genuine. Disobedient Christians but still saved. You see, Christ still dwells in you, but this isn't the power that Paul is trying to unpack in this prayer, isn't it? He isn't talking about merely being saved. It's like the farmer with the chainsaw. He had access to great power, yet he did not benefit from it, simply because he did not understand how that power was to be wielded. Now, in that same way, it is a terrible thing then to have the Spirit in you, yet not being able to fully respond to the Spirit because of the hardness of your hearts, because of the sins in your lives. See, that brings us to the second way of thinking about Christ dwelling in you. This is where Christ dwells in your heart and he fully rules over your entire life. You are like a glove, and Christ is the hand that fills the glove and does the work. How does that look like? When you're beaten and stoned for proclaiming Christ, you get up, you go to the next village, and you preach Christ. When you're jailed, you proclaim Christ to the prisoners. You teach the other prisoners to sing the hymns and praise God. You even bring the gospel to your jailers. You live and you breathe in order to serve God. You will count all things as vain in light of the gospel. Then you start to say things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Your life is hidden in Christ. You become less important to yourself and Christ becomes everything to you. And friends, 
This is what we see in Paul's life. And this is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians as he asks God to let Christ dwell in them. See, this is the purpose that Paul is asking for power for the Ephesians. He is saying, may Christ rule their hearts fully. And this is what Paul hopes for us. That Christ ruling over our hearts allows us to give ourselves to the work of the Spirit within us. And this is true power in the lives of believers. Power that changes the heart and brings about a response to the gospel. There may be those of us here today who desperately needs God to work in their life in power. You may be struggling with sickness. You may have a particular thorn in your flesh, a person who seems to make your life hell. Perhaps a sinful habit that you can't get over. Perhaps you're in great financial difficulty. And it's tempting to hope for God's power to be shown to you in a miraculous manner. Your sickness is miraculously healed. The person who hates you has a sudden change your heart and becomes your best friend. Your sinful desires vanish overnight. Or you receive an unexpected financial blessing that brings you out of poverty. And this is how we tend to think of God acting in power. And to be perfectly honest, it is not wrong to hope for these things. It is not wrong to pray for this. God in his mercy could work these things in your life in power. However, if God's solution to this is not an external miraculous working, but an internal change of heart, then that too is God's power being displayed. Perhaps the disease is not miraculously healed, but instead you learn to accept it and you seek to praise God and glorify God despite your illness. Our brother Jim Smith, who recently went to be with the Lord, he faithfully embodied this example, the power of God working in him. Perhaps the person that hates you, your thorn in the flesh, he doesn't change. But you learn to be Christ-like, forgiving the person, even 70 by 70 times, and each time never holding grudge and perfectly being loving to them. Perhaps your sinful habits does not disappear, but you are convicted to struggle daily despite feeling like you are not making any headway. Perhaps your financial struggles doesn't go away, but you choose to continue trusting in God's goodness and hold on to your love for Him. So can you see that these are examples of God working in power in that situations? And this is what Paul is praying. The Holy Spirit works in power to change your character and conviction so that you may bring glory to God through your faithful endurance. You see, this too is power. And here we see Paul praying for the Ephesians for this kind of power rather than the miraculous power that directly solves the problem. And this power is what we want to truly desire because this makes us more like Christ.
Now, this power isn't just about changing you, it has a purpose. As you continue reading in verse 17, Paul hopes that the Ephesians will be rooted and grounded in the knowledge of God's love. Now, to be rooted and to be grounded points to an imagery of a large building or a, or a tree, right? And for them to be secure and firm, the foundations have to be strong. The roots have to go deep. Now, the point isn't about roots and foundation, right? But it's about being able to stand firmly and strongly. And you know what is the soil? Love is the soil that makes believers grow in. Love is the soil that you need to be rooted in. Love is the foundation. Relying on the love of God, understanding the love of God, trusting in the love of God. Also, growing in your love for God, growing in your love for each other. And friends, these things can only come through the Spirit working in us, through Christ dwelling in us. And this love is essential for us to fulfill God's purpose for us. Now, this isn't talking about a merely intellectual exercise of, of gaining facts from the Bible or learning moral values to be memorized and quoted, right? It's tied into knowing, but it's not that kind of knowing. It is about knowing a love where we are grounded and rooted in, a love that becomes foundational for our character. See, if we know of God's love for us, if we know of Christ's love for us, but we are not rooted and grounded in it, then this understanding of love does not permeate our lives. This understanding does not invade our hearts and our minds. This understanding of love does not change your decisions to glorify God. And so the love does not rule over us. So it's not about knowledge, but it is about this understanding with your heart of the love of God that grounds us and changes us. But why does Paul want Christ to rule in their hearts? Why does Paul want them to understand God's word? Sorry, God's love. So that, verse 18, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, Paul brings out the idea of strength. Strength to be able to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. In other words, the full dimension of God's character and His love. And we then are called to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. This means that the love of Christ is so great that we cannot fully comprehend it. And if you think about it, can you comprehend what it is like to be absolutely holy and blameless all your life, perfectly obedient to God, and then to shoulder the sins of all His people on that cross. To be made sin. 
to receive the curse of the covenant breaker that you read in the Old Testament. You, who have only recently come to know the love of the Father compared to Christ, and even then imperfectly, can you really comprehend what it means for Christ, who has always been one with the Father, to become sin, to receive the judgment meant for sinners? Can you really comprehend the anguish that Christ felt when he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, if you can't, then we can't really comprehend the love that he has for you. Yet now, by the Spirit, Paul is praying for the power for them to be able to comprehend these things. This love is beyond human comprehension, and yet we are called to know and understand this love. We are called to have knowledge of this love that surpasses all knowledge. And this is why we need power from God. Power to enable us to understand in our heart this love that is beyond human comprehension. And Paul prays this prayer, not just for you to understand this love, but in understanding it, to be filled with the fullness of God. And this then is the final goal of the entire prayer. Final goal of having the power and the knowledge working in a person, which is to bring the person to the fullness of God. See, the fullness of God is when God is fully dwelling in us and we fully respond to him rightly now i say fully not because there are people in whom god is partially dwelling or 70 percent dwelling right believers are the temple of god and god dwells in all of us but when i say fully i am talking about the fullness of the response of the potential being realized it is when god dwells in us and we respond to him in love and become changed. Our characters change, our priorities change, and we reflect an image of God in the same way that Christ himself, through what he did, reveals to us the image of God. It's about total surrender, obedience to him. And that is the ultimate goal for us. The ultimate goal of being predestined, being saved, being called to be a church, to growing in Christ-likeness. The whole point is so that we will be filled with this fullness of God. To be like God in character as a son imitates his father. And having prayed this, Paul then ends in a doxology, a declaration of praise to God. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. God is able to do what he wants, and for us, God does abundantly more than we ask for because he is a generous God. He wants what is good for us, and he blesses us abundantly through this power at work within us. Through his power working within us, he makes us more like Christ, as we become filled with the fullness of God. Because that is what we truly need, even if we can't see it.
the answer to all your problems in life is not the removal of the problems, but it's about you being changed to be more like Christ. The answer is for you to draw closer to God in good times and in bad. And as we do this more and more, we bring glory to God. As Paul says in verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generation, forever and ever. Amen. And this same repeated idea seen throughout Ephesians, right? God demonstrates his mighty power in salvation for the sake of making his glory known. And so it is right then when we comprehend how God works in us to make us one with Christ through his spirit, that we will be drawn to praise him, to give him glory. The knowing, the comprehension, the understanding of God's word is part of bringing us to God's purpose in doing all these things, which is to glorify his name as you're filled with the fullness of God. Kanye West was a rapper. He originally named himself as God out of arrogance. And he did so because of how great he thought his music was. However, recently, this man heard the gospel and we start seeing evidences of his response to the Spirit. He actually said publicly that after becoming a Christian, he's no longer comfortable with his wife dressing up to be a sex symbol. And his wife was not happy because he has always been her greatest supporter and he has always encouraged her to be as sexy as possible. So what caused this change of heart? Didn't he know that for a superstar with a celebrity wife, saying this kind of things will make him lose his fan base? Uh, during his latest concert, he invited his pastor to give a gospel message on stage. Any artists here up and coming? Uh, based on the music theme, I won't be surprised. They're really good today. Right. So we all know this is not something that the world will take kindly to. So why does he risk his career? Uh, even more shocking, he just released his latest album titled, Jesus is King. If you understand the world, you can see that it can be career suicide for a rapper who is worshipped by the world to change his identity and to start making music about the gospel. So why do this? This man who once claimed that he is as good as God, you know, he went as far to call himself Yeezy, stylizing himself after Jesus in his pride. Now this same man proclaims in his new song that God is king. He proclaims that Jesus saved a wretch like him. What is happening here? Now, of course, we want to be careful not to make people into heroes, especially when someone's newly converted. Sometimes they could be doing this for the wrong motives, but if this was genuine love for God, what has happened here? This, then, is a demonstration of the power of God working in someone and changing them. See, if this is genuine, then he is changed, his priorities have changed. And we see this man then risking all that he has, all that he values for the mere chance of proclaiming the gospel, to proclaim the glory of God. So we have seen throughout the passage how the power of God works in us to bring about the glorification of God. 
So how do we apply this to us? Firstly, we are to look at the prayer carefully and emulate the heart behind it. We should desire for the fullness of God to be exhibited in our lives. Yet are we people who seek this fullness or are we more interested in searching after a different kind of fullness? The fullness of our ambitions, the fullness of our pleasures, the fullness of our joys. Now this may not be bad things, but more important than this fullness should be our desire for the fullness of God. That should be our main priority and everything else flows from that. Perhaps you are someone here who desires for great success in your career. You have studied in a prestigious university overseas and now you're back working as a professional. You're on the fast track making a career for yourself. Or perhaps you're one of the captains of industry and people know you by name. The perks are good and you are finding security in all the material things, that car that shows your status, the house of your dreams. But this prayer tells us that you know, as nice as these things are, they're not the main goal for Christians. And deep inside, you know, there will always be conflict between the desire to have the fullness of God and to seek out the fullness of your pleasures. There's always more you can do, more you can give, more you can sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. So what should your attitude be towards these things? And so, you need to look at it with the same mindset that Paul demonstrates here. You need to see if these things helps you to understand the love of God better. Do these things help you to love others better? And if it does, then keep it. But if it doesn't, then consider it all nothing. Put it at the back of your life and prioritize knowing God's love for you. Prioritize living out that love. Prioritize caring for the others around you. And ask yourself this question. Do you desire to know God better? Do you desire for the Spirit to be working in your heart to make you more like Christ? Do you desire to love unreservingly like Christ did? Listen to God's words to you today. Reprioritize. Desire to seek out the fullness of God in your lives. Ah, but how do we find this fullness? This brings us to the second point. We see from the prayers that it is about knowledge. Paul doesn't pray about things that he wishes the Ephesians will do. He doesn't pray about the changes that he wants them to make in their life. He doesn't, for, uh, he doesn't pray for them to follow the Daniel diet or journaling what Jesus says to them personally. Now, there would be many things that they can do that will help the Ephesians in their walk with God. It is true, except for the Daniel diet and journaling here. But Paul doesn't point to these things. What is his priority? He prays for knowledge. Not knowledge that comes merely from study, but knowledge that hits the heart and changes lives. This knowledge that Paul desires them to come to know is found in God's very word, the revelation of the character of God. 
And as you see the love Christ has for you in dying for your sake, you come to the knowledge that will change you. And we find this all in the Bible. So if you are not reading scripture daily, if the Bible is not your constant companion, if you are not soaked in the word of God, then friends, you cannot experience the fullness of God. You can do many good things. You can come to serve every week. You can do charitable good deeds. You can volunteer to help at church. But ultimately, without this knowledge of who God is that comes from Scripture, what He has done for you, then you won't love Him deeply enough to change your hearts. The Malays have a proverb, tak kenal maka tak cinta. You can't love what you don't know. So seek to know more about God. Read His work. Be soaked in it. Study it. Discuss it. Pour over it. And friends, I promise you, as you do that, God will give you the strength to be able to comprehend the love of Christ. He will give you an understanding of that great love that is beyond understanding. And in doing that, He will change your heart and grant you the fullness of God himself. The Anglican preacher J.C. Ryle said, I believe it to be clear evidence of the Spirit's presence when the word of God is really precious to a person's soul. Now this also points us to the third application, live out the fullness of God. As you grow in your love for Christ, as you respond to a change of heart, you start to love others more. You become more self-sacrificial. So live that out for the glory of God. Seek it. And as people see you changed by the gospel, they will give glory to God. And that is the whole point of why Paul wants the Ephesians to grow. So that through them, God will be glorified. So live out the fullness of God in your lives so that through you, God will be glorified. And if you are like many others and struggle to be Christian, then remember, the power is already in you. So why are you waiting to respond? Trust in God. Seek to glorify Him with your life. And finally, and for all the things that God has done for you in your salvation, through Christ's death on the cross, to the work of the Spirit in you, for all these things, give thanks to God. That's why Paul ends this section with a doxology. You see, this thanksgiving then, as you're soaked with gratitude to God, this thanksgiving will fuel you to lead lives that glorify God. And as we end now, I will say a prayer, and then I will invite us all to say together verse 20 and 21 as our declaration, as our prayer to God. Right? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to desire your fullness in our lives. Father, we thank you for the spirit that you have placed in us. And Father, many of us do not respond rightly to your spirit because we value many things more than we value you. So Father, we pray 
that you will give us a true and genuine understanding of your love for us, for Christ's love that is beyond understanding. So Father, work in our hearts through power so that we can comprehend and in comprehending come to love you more and in loving you more glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And we pray from verse 20 together. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.